Well, thank you for um, joining me today. Um, my name is Peter Brantley, and I'm the executive director of something called the Digital Library Federation. Um, DLF is a member organization of large research libraries, um, along with the Library of Congress, National Archives, um, the British Library, Oxford, and we also have some ally members such as um, ICTSR, JISC, and a few others. So I just want to um, use this brief time to try to talk about some of the challenges that video poses for digital libraries. Um, and in essence, this is really a dialogue for me with the larger community as I struggle to figure out the role of video in the realm of digital library production and distribution and engagement. So my thoughts here are extremely preliminary, um, and they're really meant to spark a much longer-term conversation. I actually want to um, very briefly show, if I can, this nice little video uh, that some of you may have seen, um, but I just want to proselytize it briefly. Um, this is from uh, Stanford, and it's called A Fairy Use Tale, and it's a mashup of uh, excerpts of, of Disney uh, films uh, designed to educate people about what fair use is. Uh, I won't let this run through uh, to completion, um, but if you haven't seen it, I just want to introduce it to you very briefly. If you can read the uh, FBI warning, it's also a joke. Allow citizens to reproduce, distribute, or exhibit portions of copyrighted motion pictures. By the coffee, right? Owner. And, and anybody who's foolish enough to threaten our coffee, right, has broken the law. Aren't we forgetting one teensy weensy but ever so crucial little tiny detail? You'd better be able to pay for that. Coffee, right? Permission. We haven't discussed the subject of payment. You can't get something for nothing, you know. But I don't have I'm it. not asking much. Just a token, really, a trifle. Hold on. Back up. Are you saying this is about money? I'm sorry, sir. I don't have any money. It's extortion. I prefer the term capitalist. Hear that sound? It's the sound of your freedom fluttering out the window. Okay, I'll stop it there. So I encourage you to see the rest of this video because it continues in the same theme. 
Um, so it's the Center for New Media at Stanford. Um, if you do a search for fair use tale, then you'll be able to find it. Uh, I think it's, like many of these things, quite viral right now on the net. So I expect it will be a very widely uh, distributed video. So anyway, I want to get back on the talk and, and stream through the rest of my slides. Um, you know, with, as, as the world changes, I struggle a lot, as do many of my colleagues, with trying to redefine what does a library actually do? Because historically, what we've done is we've bought books and then we've distributed them. And so we have to sort of rethink our mission and how we engage our community. My friend um, in the publishing industry, um, Mike Shatskin, um, has penned this in the context of actually of changes in publishing. Of what value is a repository of printed content in a world where everything is discovered and available through the computer? The answer is not nearly as much as it is today, as, as today, and not a fraction of what it was 20 years ago. So when I think about video, I think about the challenges that libraries have beginning to even put their heads around what it means to work with new media. This is a picture of a marvelous, beautiful new library at Berkeley. Uh, where I have my office. It's their new music library. And even this, I find an interesting concept in a digital age. What exactly is a music library um, in, an, in an era of iTunes? I mean, obviously, there are CDs that people can listen to. But part of the um, genesis of any music library is actually to have text about music. But when you go into the music library, you see not that really many books on music, actually. Um, this library has an amazing amount of underutilized space. And, and I think it was built at a time of transition. And it's one of the first libraries I've seen that I think, unfortunately, captures that transition um, in its physical space utilization. Because they're not going to be able to fill the space easily with books on music. Um, and I think the way that they anticipated, nor will the space consumption um, be um, utilized by physical media. So libraries have been all about physical things. We've had the books. Music has been records or CDs. And video has been tape or DVDs. And we've rented these things out to people to see at stations. And then they've consumed them and brought them back. And, and then we do that again. It's a very obviously non-digital way of distributing information. So libraries, in essence, have been offline, not on the network. Despite the fact that we can find things in the library on the network, really a lot of the use of libraries has been offline in a really profound way. The attitude of libraries has basically been, we've got a lot of really interesting content that we've either purchased or licensed to make available to our community. Please come and use it. It's a very passive definition of what a library is. It's assuming that users can find information that's associated with the library, and then come to the library, usually physically, in order to utilize that content. But as Peter has said, obviously, the world has changed significantly, and people can now build and create their own content, their own video, their own audio, and their own text. They make their own media in a way that I think librarians just have not fully understood yet. I don't think that there's a sense or an understanding of the shift in production styles. This is a, um, a sticky uh, on a post outside of Berkeley, Make Media Make Trouble. 
at the uh, independentmedia.org site um, from San Francisco. So, you know, this attitude of um, and this ability of making media, I think really obviously is a portent of a revolution that spells trouble for libraries in, in, a, in an interesting and challenging way. What's a library to do in this kind of environment where the ability to produce content has been democratized, the ability to access content is assumed also to be widely distributed and very democratized as well. So one thing that libraries have done is they've become cafes and they serve coffee and tea and cookies and muffins. Um, I love this shot. This is actually um, at one of the Berkeley libraries, a free speech movement cafe at Berkeley, and uh, you'll see the video screen on the background, and everybody has their laptop open um, with their notes spread. And, you know, I think also another really interesting thing about this shot is that you see people working together um, in a very collaborative fashion. You know, this is um, much less, even if they've got their laptops propped up, you know, head to head, you know, they're talking over them. This is not the uh, solitary person reading the thick tome in the corner of the library model that um, I think, you know, I grew up with anyway. But, you know, these new media have challenges because they're ephemeral. Music is sound, video is movement. Neither is a thing in the way that a printed book was a thing that could be held and distributed and cataloged and circulated. So the question for me is, how can a library be an active participant in this engagement? How does a library go about making things from the content that it has and from the content that it can access through the contributions of its own membership, its own community, students, faculty, staff, and the broader use community that libraries serve? Because video shouldn't obviously be passively consumed. Video, I strongly believe, can teach in a way that text never can. Video enlivens conversation and enlivens education in really critical and important ways that I think libraries and research universities must grapple with. I fundamentally believe that libraries should deeply engage in understanding how to utilize video resources to provide educational enrichment for students for faculty in ways that have never been explored before. This is obviously a picture of a surveillance camera um, parked outside of the UC Berkeley Mathematics Library uh, on the bottom floor of the building where I work. Uh, obviously, this is not quite the same kind of video experience that um, I'm suggesting libraries explore um, with their user community. So video is didactic. Video in our new world of being able to produce content easily is an exchange. It's not just a consumption. And again, I think this is an area where libraries have not really been able to understand fully the revolution that's taken place here. Because there's a conversation, and libraries need to be part of that conversation, universities need to be part of that conversation with their students. It's not a one-way street. We need to really understand that there's a conversation going back and forth between our faculty, our students, and the institution itself. Libraries, I think, can tell incredible stories with the resources that are available to them. Libraries are full of staff who have incredible intuition about content, about data description, about how to utilize information. And really, that, that expertise is going, to some extent, wasted in video and audio. So 
I think a new library is about partnering in a much deeper way than we've done before with scholars and information technologists and people who are engaging themselves in the creation of media to build new ways of getting information available to our community and available for reuse. So that's a library that's on the network in a way that we haven't been before, not offline in the sense of find the stuff and then come to us, but engaged, delivering, distributing, making content available. We're half of the way there in some ways. Libraries have and are preserving a tremendous amount of highly valued video resources, tremendously wonderful stuff, and beginning to explore with making this content available for annotation and for consumption and reuse by faculty. But we need to struggle more with understanding how to make it available. And libraries desperately need partners from the outside community to advise us on how to go about utilizing this information and making it available for broader consumption. And that would be you, I hope. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me today. I'm uh, Murray Weston. I'm director of the British University's Film and Video Council, um, which um, is an organization, a central organization in the UK, which is doing some of this sort of work to deliver content uh, to universities in particular for learning, teaching, and for research. We're there. Um, I'll just give a bit of background to who we are. Um, we promote the production, the study, and the use of moving image and sound. Uh, in UK higher education and research. Now, um, most of our resource is focused on the United Kingdom. Some of the things we do are made widely available, and um, I'll show you some of those things in a moment. Um, we were set up in 1948, so we weren't just set up a few years ago, and um, we were in the British Film Institute from 1968 onwards and left in 1982, and we have our own life now under the UK Higher Education Funding Councils. We're funded with core funding. We're a company limited company, charity status, so we trade and we earn money. It's a non-profit organization, which we put back into the core. And we receive about a million dollars a year at the core. It's about 500,000 pounds a year on the current exchange rate. Uh, <laughs> um, and um, we have subscribing members. Uh, the way it works is we, we provide value to all universities in the United Kingdom. In fact, anyone who wants to get into our website but the particular things which need to be sustained have to be paid for, and there's a subscription from universities that join. So there's around 230 institutions all joined. There's about 200 institutions which you could call university standing in the UK, and um, we have many of them in, but not all in membership, um, and they get various services and so on. And um, as I say, some of our stuff goes out widely online, and uh, we undertake not only uh, sort of service development, but uh, research and project development as well. That's the front page of our website, and um, I'm going to gallop through now because I feel I've got far too much to try to pass on to you, and uh, I apologize if I do sort of ramble, um, but I'm going to try to get through as fast as I can. I'll try to take you through some of the reasons why I think moving pictures are used at all in education, which sounds rather 
sort of bring us down uh, a little bit because really I'm a service provider and uh, we want to have an effect with the work we do. Um, so the question is what, what are moving images used for in education? And I think all of this stuff is fairly elderly. Um, there's the instrumental use, of course. That's illustration. Um, the audiovisual aid and what a burden uh, that has been to us in many ways. Um, as well as the burden of having entertainment take moving pictures away from scientists who first invented them, in effect. Because I think you know, this legacy is, is, um, has um, held us up somewhat in getting the content into the scholarly world. Um, as enrichment is a word that's used regularly, but um, let's say working in the affective domain, let's talk about Bloom's taxonomy, maybe, for a moment, uh, because there are different ways people learn, changing hearts and minds, learning things, the cognitive or learning how to do things, the psychomotor. I think these are quite important ideas, which quite elderly about human behavior, but terribly important to us. And then, and I might say, we, we're right in the heart of this, as primary resource, a primary uh, record or secondary record, uh, capable of use and to be continuously referable, um, long term, to rely on it being there as standard content, to look back at, to write about, to review, and to engage with on a continuous basis. And then as a scientific device, the scientists, we had a book that just came out recently. It's an old book, just recently reprinted. It was Italian, uh, written by Virgilio Tozzi. Um, it's now called Cinema Before Cinema. Of course, science invented moving pictures. Then the Lumiere brothers and one or two other fairground and fit-up merchants came along and made it entertainment. And um, arguably... There's still a lot to be said about um, moving image as a fundamental research tool. And then there's live communication, of course, now, see a lecture, drop into a conference, talk to your peers online, and as a creative medium. Now, it's fairly sort of basic uh, analysis. But right now, I'm going to look at some of those things which we do, which tend to focus on the things which are in red here. Uh, rather than those other things here. That's today, anyway. We're interested in all of these. Now, the moving pictures, their status in scholarship. Um, I might say 30-something years ago when I started in this field, I thought it was a done deal. And my God, it still isn't. And um, it's disheartening, really. Uh, I told you we were, our organization started in 1948, and I look back to the journal articles written in 1949, 1950. We'd probably be reading them now and just change one or two words and it'd be the same messages and we haven't got very far. Um, we've had just about 100 years of recorded moving pictures, but unlike text in the United Kingdom, and I don't know enough about the, uh, the US, um, we have no statutory deposit, we have no unified national catalogue, we've got poor research access, in fact, almost non-existent research access, we've got no interlibrary loan, which is standard in the UK for a book. You go to the smallest library in the UK and order a book and three or four weeks later it will come from somewhere on the library network. We've got no arrangements for fair dealing. Um, you call it fair use over here. This is all changing because we have just reviewed this because fair dealing broadcasting and film is not included in our fair dealing arrangements yet. Um, we've got no developed culture of reference or review from a scholarly perspective in my view. There's a Times Literary Supplement but we haven't got a Times Moving Image Supplement. Uh, it's just indicative of where we are. We're right in the backwoods. And there's very rare integration of this content with text sources. 
And there is poor or non-existent teacher training for use in the United Kingdom. Um, all sorts of things are taught to teachers about teaching, but very little about engagement with moving image content and um, what you can expect to find and how to find it and all those sorts of things. So we've got a huge uphill struggle still. I want to show you a bit of movie just to break things up a bit. I'm, I better check I'm actually on. Yes, I think I am. Likely to be concerned at the extraordinarily intemperate language which is coming out on behalf of the Prime Minister in your name. The story was a lie. It is a lie. Correct. Weasel words. Weasel not incidentally spelt correctly uh, in consistent uh, terms with the original well, fake if I dossier. It, if I may say so, the statement that you're reading from was read to the Press Association. So that, that I, I wouldn't get hung up on a spelling mistake by somebody who's, who's typed it. Although I know that you and you also, John, reported the four people in my office were responsible for writing the so-called dodgy dossier when they were not. However, put that to one side. The reason that is weasel words is it does not answer the questions that I put. I asked the BBC whether they were standing by the allegation they made the BBC made, as John Humphreys described it, the BBC made the allegation that we deliberately exaggerated, abused, and the answer distorted to that question that you put to the BBC, to the, question, the answer to the question you put to the BBC, do they stand by it? The answer is yes. The answer, a robust yes. Excuse me. That letter is about as robust as Blackburn Rovers wore when they played Trelleborgs. in the US, you may well have done, um, because it was reference to the build-up to the Iraq war. The uh, question is, though, what was that recording? When was it recorded, and by who? Why was it recorded? What were they talking about? What is the dodgy dossier? Who were the people in it? How and when was the recording released? How many people saw it? Is there any other related content? Is this sequence likely to have long-term value? And how can I get hold of it? And what can I do with it? Well, that came from ITN, and in fact, we had a group of 12 people at that time working in there at that moment when it happened. Um, some of you will be able to answer some of those questions, but some of you won't. Many of you will not know who that guy was uh, and exactly what he was talking about. And the, my point about this is metadata is king. Um, the provenance, the, the origin of this content and so on, it is so important. If we strip this away, if we harvest the stuff in such a way that you do not know what this means, we're in deep trouble. And I think the people from Google and other places that seem to be making so much money realize that metadata means much more than the content that's being delivered. It's a bit like farming. I said this the other day. You know, farmers' prices are going down and down and down, and yet somehow the supermarkets are making more and more money, certainly in the United Kingdom. How can that be? The producers are not, you know, the content somehow doesn't get monetized in quite the same way as the metadata at the moment. The middleman. Um, well, what do most teachers and students want? Uh, and this is a fairly primitive um, explanation, but I hope it's gone into most of the nooks and crannies. Uh, high quality finding systems and provenance, detailed links. Uh, simple and elegant access to arrangements to the content, maximum flexibility in licensing for reuse, long-term access in perpetuity perhaps, opportunities for exchange and use locally, and license for public demonstration of their work. Now, I said earlier that um, we have to find ways to sustain the work we do. And philosophically, I'm very keen on open access and open content. At the same time, we have to find a way to 
get the funds in to do the work and to sustain it. And so we're very much subscription-based at the moment, um, and we use authenticated access for UK students with the greatest flexibility, we hope, for access to the content we deal with. Now, news from online is a big thing we're just finishing, and I'm going to have to now speed up because I can see the clock is ticking away. We've just come out of their offices, and um, I think it's one of the greatest collaborations for a long time between academia and a full-on commercial uh, television company. 3,000 hours of content um, in three file formats. Um, that's 65,000 seg segments and around 10 million thumbnails that derived from the movies. You can get very nice still pictures out of movies as you encode them, which are quite valuable. Um, and we hope to release this, or at least JISC, the Joint Information Systems Committee, which gives us quite a lot of money, hopes to deliver that uh, within six months. Now, some of that stuff can be seen online already in a placeholder website, which you can actually play with from anywhere in the world and download the content. And the key to this is we don't do streaming, we do download. So you get a copy to play with, as I've been playing with that one, of Alistair Campbell, was the name of the guy, um, and John Snow doing the interviewing. Um, ITN let us have full run of their archive, basically. We came with about £2 million of government money, um, and we've come away with 3,000 hours. It works out around £600 an hour. In fact, previous work we've done is £600 an hour to get it ready, do the metadata, encode it, get it ready to go up. And that's our sort of benchmark at the moment with good quality catalogers. And um, on this site, you can search... And we can then, um, and this is one which you could go and play with yourself later on. Uh, this is one I've just downloaded. A sea of placards by the River Thames, each saying no to war in Iraq. Marching through the streets of London, sending a message to Tony Blair and George W. Bush, not in my name. It's the scale of the protest that is unprecedented. Organisers say two million people, though police say less than half that number. It's the biggest rally ever on British soil. Made up of pacifists, Christian groups, Muslim organisations. And many, many Labour supporters. The real Tony Blair certainly wasn't here. His father-in-law, however, was. If you have a message for the government, what would it be? Give peace a chance. And thousands upon thousands of ordinary people galvanised into action, many for the first time, by the belief that an invasion of Iraq cannot be justified. Before it will happen... Um, and um, we've got bundles of stuff now which we'll be able to look back at on the dodgy dossier and everything else. And I think for years and years to come, there'll be analysis going on of what did happen and who was duping who, who, and so on. Um, another thing we've worked on is now expressing itself as film and sound online. 7,000 items, and these are about 500 hours of movies, um, and a music collection, um, segmented, we segment our stuff. We know you can get the whole movie, but we also have bits. Um, behind an authentication barrier, um, the music sounds something like this. Ah, oh, down, but never mind. Um, and this is music we've licensed for bending, stretching, doing what we want with, and it is some of the finest stuff to come out of Abbey Road studios. 
and George Martin's colleagues, and um, we have the right to do that in perpetuity. Um, and that's been proved to be useful. This is what we call the scratch and sniff contract as you go into the website. At the bottom there, you've got to do something and say, yes, I agree. Um, but all students and staff in UK universities can have access to this. And it's progressive download. This is the interface we didn't build. Uh, and here um, is an example. Trials of Alger Hiss, one of the great movies, John Lowenthal's movie we have up. It's a three-hour magnum opus documentary, some of you may know. Um, and um, this is the sort of metadata we put together. And uh, you can scroll down. This is the bit about the segment. Um, and you can download in Windows Media or whatever, standard stuff, QuickTime, and you've got it to use as I'm trying to right now. Um, our license, by the way, allows me to show it to you today for promotion and to express what we're doing. I'm afraid probably I won't be able to sign the bit of docket later for it to be distributed again, but that's another thing we can talk about, um, under Creative Commons, that is. And um, this is... So with you. The purpose of this group at that time was not primarily espionage. Its original purpose was the communist infiltration of the American government. But espionage was certainly one of its eventual objectives. Right after Chambers finished his testimony, we received a wire from Alger Hiss asking for the opportunity to be heard on his side of the case. And so we gave him that chance just two days later. A little uh, exchange went on between Mr. Hiss and Mr. Nixon, uh, Nixon which is not in the record in which Mr. Hiss said, I am a graduate of Harvard Law School, and I believe yours is Whittier. And uh, this just absolutely ripped Mr. Nixon apart. I'm going to try to wind up as fast as possible. I'm five minutes over. A very big thing which we've got online and is the biggest thing. In fact, I think in the UK, it's the only post-transmission access uh, route to records of broadcast in the United Kingdom. We decided a few years ago to start ingesting with a subscription to big database provider all the television and radio records for reception in the United Kingdom. Uh, it's around 50 channels. Um, and it amounts to 1.3 million records a year, we're up to 7.8 million records so far, so you can roughly work out how long we've been doing this. Um, and under a special license under UK law, we can record any broadcast we like pretty much. And so we're recording 44,000 hours a year of UK television. We've been doing that since 1998, so we've got a huge stock, around 300,000 hours of television, maybe a bit more. We're doing seven channels 24-7. And we'd like to do more, but, you know, every time you add a channel, it gets another incremental cost. And this is really supported by subscription because we're allowed to provide copies of programs to students and staff in universities under license for use on campus in learning and teaching. Um, and it is a marvelous bit of UK law. We've got 22,000 registered users there. It's an authenticated system, this. And were you to get into it, you'd see something like this. It actually receives the data 10 days in advance of transmission, so we can actually, you can set up your own thing so it tells you what programs are coming on in any channel receivable, which might be on volcanoes or whatever you're interested in. I don't know, you know, it might be on George Bush, and you set up a little routine, say, I'm interested in George Bush. Any programs that come in, say, you know, and it'll send you an email saying they're coming up on these channels. Um, it's a very elegant thing, and it's, it's probably our sort of what you might call killer application 
to help to um, assist us in being. Um, the 44,000 hours a year, um, if you do a search, you'll find there's a little pinger here somewhere, there's a little identifier. Automatically, the system uh, will tell you whether we have a copy. And uh, the interesting thing is you use a unique identifier number so that if the same program arrives on another channel at some point in the future, which we don't record, it'll still ping up to say we got a copy, because even though we didn't record the channel, if you understand what I'm saying. Um, and that's very handy, because programs move around all over the place. This was a search for George Bush, I think. Um, and, um, and it was going back uh, six months. I don't know what this is. There's some sort of satirical program about George Bush. We can provide this physically through the post. Um, we're just moving to a licensing arrangement where we may be able to provide, just throw the switch so people can go into our hard disk-based system, which is ingesting this content. Uh, it's like a giant TiVo box, so the university staff can go straight from the database and say, I want a copy of that now. It won't come immediately. It'll come in storm forward. It'll come during the night and arrive. Um, and this is the sort of quality they would get. You're watching BBC Four on BBC Two. Now, historic eyewitness testimony to the amazing achievements of John Logie Baird, the man who saw the future. Well, I don't think I can show you this. Uh, for all the obvious reasons, we didn't feel the rights in this to show you. And I probably breached all sorts of rights. And um, the big fear is what's going to happen if, if you have breached rights. Um, I carry now five million pounds worth of professional indemnity insurance. That's ten million dollars at the U.S. current currency rates, uh, paid for by someone else um, because the responsibility for these things delivered into UK universities rests on my shoulders. The UK government won't take any responsibility for anything. So it, if anything goes to the UK government-funded agencies, they send a letter to me because I've said yes, you can do it. Um, that's one way of handling things. I know the um, rights people at Lloyd's didn't. I mean, the uh, the PI people at Lloyd's didn't fully understand the use of the insurance in that way. But um, that's what we've done. Now, um, we have gone about clearing rights in the conventional sense, in the way that we have contracts with owners. The ITN content, by the way, is in perpetuity. It's progressive download. It's all staff and students of the United Kingdom, bona fide staff and students of the United Kingdom. Whether they're sitting in the UK or abroad, which is useful, so that they can sit in Hong Kong as long as they're registered with a UK university. Um, and now the uh, ITN has told BUFEC that we may be able to issue a license to US universities if we would like to discuss it. So we'd like to find another organization, not like BUFEC, we could talk to. I don't think we could easily talk to all the universities, but um, it would be nice to see the central organization which might help us to do that. Um, I think rights clearance, you've got to stare the monster in the face. Um, and you've got, to, you've got to go for these things. And I think we're making headway. And I think what's happened now, there is greater collaboration with owners. Whatever people say, there is something giving in the system. Uh, when we first went to ITN, they wanted £2,000 a minute for digitization rights. This was in 1994. And um, the whole process had not matured. And I said, bye then. You know, It's all changed. We paid £100 an hour for the rights component for the ITN content in perpetuity. So it's a tokenistic payment, really. Um, I don't think that's breaching any sort of uh, uh, confidentialities at all. Um, 
I think there's a growing understanding of education's needs, and indeed the chief executive officer at the time, Stuart Purvis of ITN and Reuters, or Reuters Television, was, um, he said, look, this is my career as much as anything else that you're going to be putting down, and uh, I'd like to see that happen. And um, I think they're sort of on our side, and uh, I think we need the dialogue. Um, we've got this formal review, which is just going on in the United Kingdom. We call it the Gowers Review, which is actually extending exceptions, but getting very hard with remedies if you uh, breach things. So it's interesting that things are softening up in one way, but getting harder in another. And I think this is not a bad thing. Um, and there are going to be new licensing arrangements to be offered within copyright exceptions. That's when you break the monopoly of copyright, which we can do under the Berne Convention in certain cases. And the sharing licenses, like Creative Commons, yeah, fair enough, I needed it. Um, and I know Paul would be likely to talk about that in a moment. Um, they're coming forward. I see this as a patchwork quilt of delivery. I'm not bothered that there's YouTube there, really, because I think there are free handouts, free newsletters, free all sorts of things around. And then there's the high-quality, high-value stuff, which you may have to pay a small amount for somewhere with some license right at top level, which um, is free at the point of use. Um, I think we... Um, no, right, by, by high quality, I meant high quality metadata and all the rest of it. I mean, the, the fact is the thing is structured, content is structured so you can find it and get the provenance and, and all that stuff, and that sort of thing. I mean, people put print on notice boards, they put print in parish newsletters, they, they you know, agit prop has been around a long time. I think, you know, it's, the fact is what we're trying to do is to build a corpus of scholarly engagement with this type of content. Um, I hope, um, which stands slightly differently from that which is all over the place. I think it's terrific in itself. Okay. <laughs> but I do think international harmonization is something we're all going for in all of these things, and I think G8 is probably trying to do that because I think there's been a review here of um, exceptions and so on. And I think we do need greater communication with rights owners rather than less. Uh, it's important because they will come on board if we talk in the right talk at the right times. And I apologize for overrunning. Um, and what happened there? My name's Paul Gerhardt. I'm the um, project director for a project known as the uh, Creative Archive at the BBC. Some of you will have heard about this already, and some of you will have seen other presentations about it. And I'm really going to use this as an opportunity to bring you up to date with what's happening. Uh, before I do that, I just want to show a very short video that explains what it's about, so that I don't have to go into a long, wordy explanation myself. So I'm going to show you this, and then I'm going to tell you what's the status of the project at the current time. Let me just show you this short
so that was the proposition. And what we did with the Creative Archive project was to identify a portion of the BBC's archive, film, uh, TV and radio, uh, that we wanted to release for creative reuse by the, uh, the BBC's public um, and the people who pay for the BBC in the UK. Uh, under the new way in which the BBC is run and regulated, what we had to do was to, uh, to run that as a trial and to collect the data to prove that it was going to be of value for money and that it was going to have a limited impact on the existing commercial markets and video and so forth for the BBC to proceed with this on a big scale. So what we did was to run the project for nearly 18 months and uh, we released about 500 items of content. And over that period of time, we had around about 100,000 registered users. They needed to register in order to access the site, but it was completely free for them to do so. And those were users including both um, educationalists, learners, of course, but also people who are interested in natural history, example there, or people interested in local history, um, uh, and all kinds of other topics. All of the content we released was from our factual and news areas, and we were quite restrained when it came to the entertainment and, uh, um, and fiction content because we knew that there were going to be much more complex rights issues to tackle. Now, um, as a, a pilot, it was, a, um, a, I think, a reasonable success, and it provided us with a lot of data to demonstrate that there was a huge public appetite <coughs> to, um, to engage much more, um, much more strongly with the BBC's archive. Since then, however, we've faced a really complex set of issues in the BBC, a big challenge, because the BBC in the UK now is a heavily regulated institution. I would even use the term over-regulated in its current status. The new BBC Trust, which was replaced the old Board of Governors of the BBC, is um, the, the, the regulator of the institution appointed by the government, and unfortunately now containing, I think, very few experienced broadcasters amongst its trustees. The function of the Trust is to simply approve what the BBC does and to provide um, either um, encouragement or, to, or discouragement about the, the, the services that the BBC offers to the UK public. Every new idea, um, every new proposition, and the Creative Archive was certainly came under the parameters of being an extremely new proposition, challenging one, every new idea has to go through what's called a public value test. And that's a test that takes between six and nine months in the UK. And the service has to go undergo a, an exhaustive study, both of its, um, as I mentioned earlier, both of its value to the people who pay for the BBC, but also its market impact on the rest of the sector. And all of the evidence for that is weighed up and a decision is made about whether it should go forward. The Trust has been in operation now for um, um, uh, uh, at least six months and it's only had time to consider one, one new idea. So we have a kind of logjam. We have a logjam of new, exciting new propositions flowing out of the BBC's strategy to renew its charter, which it successfully renewed last year. And that renewal strategy, strategy involved a shopping list 
of new propositions to engage the audience of the future in a post-broadcast world. And those shopping, that shopping list of propositions has now turned into a stack of uh, queuing items to go through this new BBC Trust system. The, the, the difficulty is compounded, and I'm being very open about the challenges facing a you know, major institution like the BBC here, but the, the challenge has been compounded by the level of funding that the BBC has now received for the next five years. Uh, the BBC, as you know, is funded by a licence fee with a very, very small amount of supplementary income coming from commercial activities. The level of funding we receive from the licence renewal um, is well below what we expected to have in the next five years, and that has led to a very serious review of the priorities for the BBC in the next decade. And the, 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 the really important debate is the debate that we're having right here today and tomorrow. It's the debate about the old world and the new. It's a, the debate about being a conventional broadcaster on offering the, uh, the portfolio of genres that a proportion of the public has grown up with and loved and wants to experience every day and taking a leap into a different kind of delivery, a different kind of content and addressing new audiences, many of whom are very resistant to the BBC in the way it's currently established. And that debate between those two, between the past and the future, is, of course, as you would expect in many institutions, and I know it's the same with public, public service television in the US as well, it's now a debate over resources. The, um, the real issue for the younger generation, however, is that the BBC committed itself in its charter renewal process to making its assets and its content more open and accessible to that generation, not just to read, but to read, write, and to share. Um, and meeting that challenge and living up to that expectation is going to be a huge difficulty. It's compounded by an extraordinary decision that the BBC Trust made only a few weeks ago, um, which was that uh, there was a complaint in, uh, to the European Commission under competition law about the BBC's service for the classroom, that is, for uh, formal education. For the last five years, the BBC has been developing something called the Digital Curriculum, which it now delivers under the brand BBC Jam. And this is a, a, a fully um, multimedia experience based on the UK school curriculum that can be used by teachers and students alike in the classroom. £150 million worth of public investment, of which £75 million have already been spent. And as a result of this, of this um, complaint to the European Commission, indeed passed on to the UK government, and then forwarded to the BBC Trust, the decision was taken to first suspend and then to pull the plug entirely on the, on the whole digital, digital curriculum project. And effectively, what that has meant is that the, currently the BBC provides nothing for the formal sector in the UK, nothing for formal education. It has now been required to reassess what it makes for the classroom and to resubmit those plans for what I described to you earlier as the public value test, which we'll take 
between six and nine months of um, scrutiny and assessment before a decision is taken about how it can proceed. So the point I'm making here is that the BBC is in a very, very vulnerable situation in terms of measuring up to the expectations that um, it's been, uh, and the promises it's been delivering over the last few years. In the case of the Creative Archive itself, we don't even have a date about when that public value test will actually start. And uh, it raises kind of an extraordinary issue about any new media, um, future media project of this kind, where you, you know, we had 100,000 people who were active customers and engaged with working with us to develop this whole idea, and we've had to disconnect from them. We've had to end the project. It no longer exists. We're in limbo until we get the go-ahead through the BBC trust decision. Date to be determined. However, it's not all gloomy. Um, one of the important things is that the Creative Archive idea, that is the idea of broadcasters and archives sharing some of their content with the public in this way, the idea is out there. And indeed, one of the first, first uh, um, phases of the, um, of the project was that we wanted to share the license scheme itself, the Creative Archive license, based on a Creative Commons license. And we have, share, we have shared it. There are other organisations in the UK who are busy using it, whether it's the British Film Institute or indeed ITN, which is a commercial library that wants to use it to shop windows some of its, um, some of its material. So it's quite possible that these other organisations will develop the Creative Archive proposition in the UK ahead of the BBC, and the BBC itself will have to play a catch-up game, maybe in nine months or 12 months' time. So um, the, the other important thing to notice is that the BBC hasn't given up on its archive. It's still continuing, even though the resources are much more challenging, it's still continuing to develop strong archive ideas. And uh, at the moment, we've now got the archive catalogue available online, which uh, at least gives people an opportunity to scrutinise what's available and to look, at the, um, uh, uh, to look at the gaps that the BBC has in its own, um, its own uh, data on, on its collection going back the last 50 or 70 years. Um, and it's been extremely interesting to see how this catalogue has been used. We also have a new archive trial. But instead of being in the creative archive proposition, which is read, write, and share, this is a read-only trial. And this read-only trial will be starting in the next few weeks once we've secured the final permissions from um, some of the key underlying rights holders, particularly the Writers Guild. This new archive trial will be um, offering... I'm not moving forward, Hans. This new archive trial will offer 1,000 hours of content um, and it will be selecting 500 hours that shows the depth of the archive and, and 500 hours that shows the breadth of the content. 70% of it will be TV and 30% of it will be radio. It will be closed to a group of trialists. It will be available only in the UK and streamed in this first instance. 
50 hours of the 1,000 will be open to the public as a whole in order to gauge the wider public demand. So the opportunity is there for the public to continue to demonstrate its appetite for the BBC's archive. The question remains whether the BBC itself will find the resources in order to match those expectations and to deliver upon it. Um, the other point I'd like to make before, um, before uh, I, I close and hand over to Rick, who I'm looking forward to hearing from as well, is that um, I, I was really interested to hear what uh, Frank Retty was saying earlier this morning about the challenges of this new media, particularly re relating to, to journalism. Um, in another part of the BBC woods, as it were, there has been a, an extraordinary challenge in the last couple of weeks to many of the conventions around BBC current affairs journalism. Um, and this relates particularly to uh, what happened with a, um, our flagship um, uh, current affairs programme called Panorama, when it chose to investigate what was happening in the world of Scientology. Could we do a YouTube search? I'll let someone else do this while I explain it to you. BBC decided some months ago it was going to make a, a programme looking at the Church of Scientology. And this is not a debate about Scientology, so I don't want to get into that. But um, if you could put in... Um, if, you could, if, if you could look for Panorama John Sweeney. Okay. Um, what happened, though, in this situation where the BBC was going to investigate this particular organisation... It came up against an organisation that was really quite sophisticated in its own use of the media. And indeed, every single uh, interview and every single scene was paralleled and mirrored by Scientologists' own, um, own film group. Panorama? Yeah, Panorama. Okay. And John Sweeney. It'll... This is one of the first videos that went up, and this came from. I'm not an expert on Rebelship, and when asked in that case why he kept making. This is from the Scientologist's video. His reaction was That's not necessarily a typical BBC um, interview. <laughs> um, <laughs> but of course, what happened was that a particularly, a particularly bad mistake on his part, extremely bad, uh, was captured. And, and, and not surprisingly, that went up on YouTube the week before the programme itself was due to be over <laughs> which caused one or two interesting editorial repercussions, one of which was they were forced to include that in the actual broadcast show, and there's no way that would have happened before. But the other thing that happened was that the BBC 
had to post its own YouTube response prior to the broadcast of the program. And the Scientology video and the BBC response in turn generated about a dozen other responses of people who were mashing up those two, comparing them and providing their own evidence about Scientology and, and the issues concerned. All this happened before the screening of the network programme. Now, this is a really interesting moment, at least in the BBC, in the UK's broadcasting culture, because here you have a declared subject for a current affairs investigation. And traditionally, we know what that means. The BBC pronounces on high, it's an interesting high-quality production, um, it causes a lot of uh, water-cooler conversation, as you call it, the next day, and one or two people might feel offended in the way they were treated, and they might write in, and they'll get a polite reply back saying, we acknowledge your points, but, you know, go away. Margaret. <laughs> Yes, they trailed him. They, they, they mirrored. They had their own. They had their own production crew. Yes. Well, he couldn't stop it because every time he was interviewing them, they were they were recording it. So, um, so, so the, the the point is that the the rules of of this current affairs broadcast model relationship have undergone a very very profound challenge for the BBC to announce in advance what it's going to treat as a subject matter of a of a documentary in the future will raise the possibility not just of very sophisticated organisations like Scientologists managing to subvert it, but of course anybody with the, with the kind of equipment that's now available in order to set their own terms for the debate and to distribute their own views at the same time before and after. Now, this has to be a force to be reckoned with for good or bad, and it's going to be an extremely interesting development. And I was, um, I, I, I was just struck by what um, Kathy was saying earlier this morning as well, about the fact that there are kind of two tracks at the moment that, um, for, for, for what's going on in this media, that there is the huge upsurge of grassroots activity of the kind that we can see reflected by YouTube, and we have the much slower pace of institutional change. Uh, and I reflected on that, and I thought, well, this really is the challenge for an organisation like the BBC. Is it a process of slow institutional change, or is it going to adjust and have to adjust in a much more revolutionary sense to this upsurge of democratic voices that we see through YouTube? Um, and I hope that the decisions it makes about open content and an open archive in the future will be reflected in the way that takes up those challenges. Um, I'll be around to talk more later on. Thanks very much.